So there's always been this kind of tussle between the creative work and the forensic pathology type investigation. So what I'm kind of doing now is really enacting the blueprint that was always there. It's just taken me a little bit of a while and like a whole different career to kind of get around to what I always intended to do. But that journey was not wasted <laughs> at all, I don't think. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of arts research in Africa. I'm Professor Christo Doherty, the head of arts research in the Witz School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Dr. Catherine Smith, the head of the Visual Arts Department at Stellenbosch University and the founder and leader of the Viz Lab, the first facility in Africa and one of the few in the world to offer research and casework expertise in forensic facial imaging. Catherine's career trajectory has taken her from advanced contemporary art practice to a deep engagement with the practicalities, theoretical and ethical challenges of forensic facial imaging. She began her career with a BAFA and MAFA at WITS and was the Standard Bank Young Artist of 2004, but then moved into the forensic sciences with an MSc in Forensic Art at the University of Dundee in Scotland and a PhD also in Forensic Art at the Liverpool John Moores University. In this discussion, I learn about the remarkable journey that Catherine has followed and we consider the implications of knowledge generation in the transdisciplinary space of arts, science, technology research. Catherine, great pleasure to meet up with you again. And what I'd like to start with is just a brief trajectory of your career from the time that I knew your work as an exceptionally interesting and provocative crime artist and muse to forensic artist. So really starting with the beginnings of your art career at WITS and your work, your MA on uh, Joel Peter Whitkin and what for me was really a seminal event was Jack in Johannesburg and obviously your fascination with Walter Sickert and the notion of artist criminal and also the work that you did on that theme for your Standard Bank, the 2004 Young Artist Award exhibition, that euphemism exhibition, another absolutely fascinating work. So let's start there. Thank you. That's a lot. Thanks for having me. It's great to reconnect. It sort of feels a bit weird because obviously I've been away from South Africa for a little while um, and coming back, you know, mid-pandemic. It's been a curious thing of reconnecting. So this is a good place to start. I think the crime artist and muse phrase might have been Margie Orford's, the writer. I'm not sure. Um, but we had a kind of interesting interaction um, over many years as she was writing sort of crime novels and actually working from our, our first meeting was spurred by her seeing euphemism and needing to kind of stage an artist character who was sort of working in a similar way. So did my undergrad at Vitz, but actually always interested in, shall we say, sort of cultures of investigation. Um, I didn't obviously have the language at the time um, to articulate things in this way, but was always interested as a child, actually, knowing that you could be an artist in the police, but the word forensic art, the phrase didn't exist. And then recognizing as well that art is an intellectually promiscuous space. So there's a lot you can get to through art and making a kind of critical decision. Also because my parents wisely discouraged me from joining the police at the time. And also South Africa was a very different place when I was in high school. And the police were, you know, involved in things that were probably not so kosher. So... You know, the other thing was forensic pathology. So there's always been this kind of tussle between the kind of creative work and the kind of forensic pathology type um, investigation. So what I'm kind of doing now is really enacting the blueprint that was always there. It's just taken me a little bit of a while and like a whole different career to kind of get around to what I always intended to do. But that journey was not wasted <laughs> at all, I don't think. Yeah, so I did in my fourth year... I had the opportunity, so fourth year undergrad at WITS, I had the opportunity of 
auditing, and also that was a word I didn't know at the time. Um, so sitting in on lectures in the law school, a friend who I had a part-time job with um, was a law student, and he asked for kind of moral support, as it were, for his forensic elective module. So I went along, and it turns out that after a whole term or semester, I think this was a whole semester of lectures, the lecturers called me out because I didn't appear at the oral exam or whatnot, and they said, you know, who are you? Because you're not on the class list, but you're the only one with perfect attendance. So then I had to confess. didn't know it was entirely legitimate to actually sit in on classes that you weren't registered for, but in any case. But that actually led to me being able to access what was then the Hillbrow Mortuary and kind of see it firsthand and shadow a police photographer and just sort of get a sense of, of the culture of work in that environment and how the visual functions in that space. So, you know, I was able to produce work for the MA from that environment, being also extremely conscious about, and probably more conscious now than I was then, about the ethics of that kind of exchange. And really, I think that was why I was really interested in a photographer like Joel Peter Whitkin, because of the study there was kind of looking at objection and the grotesque. But ultimately, I realize now what I've always been interested in are the ethics of representation and display and the ways in which the visual functions in different contexts and how it is sort of inappropriate for some images to travel out of one environment and into another. So all of those kinds of like regimes of representation, visual cultures of science, specifically forensics, you know, the history of anatomy is largely a visual one. And then all of the kind of privileging of the visual, you know, enlightenment logic, kind of empiricism, all that kind of stuff. It's interesting, but more interesting to me is what we are allowed to see. You know, do we have the right to look? and who acts as gatekeepers for certain kinds of images. So after doing that MA, I've spent years in the contemporary art space at a time when the art market or the art world didn't exist in the way that it did now, but being really interested in the kind of structures and systems. It sounds a bit dumb, but it's like, be the change you want to see. You know, So with Trinity Session, being a founding member of Vanza, like starting to establish some of those things that we thought we needed, but kind of creating space in new ways was post-biennial, recognizing the need to establish certain systems that were maybe outside of a kind of commercial gallery model, albeit very few of those existed at the time, or certainly not functioning in the way that they do now. So the Standard Bank Young Artist Award was a bit of a surprise, but it did lead to kind of, you know, gallery representation and different kind of profile but various sort of studio and curatorial projects have explored these cultures of investigation and forensic aesthetics, broadly speaking, at the intersection of like studio and archive and this idea of difficult histories. I mean, I suppose there's an element of justice um, underpinning all of it, but the kind of forensic imperative to reconstruct and retrieve have always been very persistent in my practice regardless. You know, so whether it was Jack in Johannesburg or the in-camera project with the kind of invisible drawings, or walking back the cat, which looked at a um, at a, a serial offender um, in in the Himmel and Otter Valley, and the kind of investigative processes there, or even curatorial projects like between subject and object, looking at the relationship between you know photography and trace, and like actual objects from the sort of medico legal and anatomical space. There's a lot. So that's really the trajectory. And then so I suppose that led to figuring out not just how to enact these things as an artist, sort of working with these ideas from the outside, but actually training in this space so that I could participate in this work as a service. And that I left the gallery that was representing me at the time and, and I kind of left the art world for a little while in order to create the space to do that because I realized the two things couldn't exist in parallel, certainly not while I was training. So that's really the story. So from 2012, that's when I went off to Scotland for the first time to do the MSc in Forensic Art. It would seem to me 
that in some ways your work as an artist was dealing with the forensics investigation, the aesthetics of forensics from perspective of art practice, particularly what was then late postmodernist practice that was deeply hostile to any kind of closure that was very much about resisting conclusion, resisting reaching insights. And your move, as you describe it, by 2012, where you left the gallery, where you moved to the Dundee Centre for Anatomy and Human Identification, was in many ways you were also abandoning that kind of postmodern relativism and skepticism? Um, No, because I remain deeply skeptical and I remain deeply intrigued by, let's just say, science is often like sort of a resistance to seeing itself as a kind of a social thing. I'm very interested in the kind of social work of science. So science and society, SDS studies, that sort of thing is, you know, the kind of classic Bruno Latour studying scientists in the lab as a kind of ethnography. What I think I was concerned with more at the time was being quite uncomfortable about what it meant to be a contemporary artist participating in a kind of a gallery and biennial and, you know, art fair kind of economy and the transactional nature of that space and the content of what I was dealing with. Like there was a bit of a tension there for me. I would identify as deeply relativist. (laughs) I think there are multiple truths and I'm fascinated by truth-making, particularly in the forensic space. And truth-making in a kind of post-truth world is a very interesting space to try and occupy. And I realize that often in my conversations with scientists, they get to a point where we need to have that conversation about multiple truths. And the fact that truth is a construct and it's not self-evident. Point taken. But tell me about what it was like to move from the gallery system to a center for anatomy and human identification where you did an MSc. Part of that experience, the most liberating part, if I'm completely honest, was just leaving a a role of being a kind of a coordinator of, of a fine arts program within a visual arts school and all of those kind of academic and managerial responsibilities and going, great, I'm a student again. I have, don't have to sit in meetings. <laughs> I can literally go to class and learn things. So the course itself was forensic art and facial identification, but some of those modules were shared with an MSc in medical art and illustration. So it was really interesting to be in the same space as, as people training to be medical artists, as well as forensic artists and understanding the difference between those two worlds, those two applications. But it was also amazing to be in a lab environment and learn how anthropologists, for example, describe, you know, human difference and finding myself really taken aback by the language that was used in that space, that we would really think twice about that language within a humanities space. And, you know, thankfully, the discipline of what was physical anthropology and is now biological anthropology, which is the kind of umbrella discipline under which forensic art is like one tiny sort of super specialization. There's a little bit more self-awareness when it comes to how that discipline has always understood or conceptualized sexual dimorphism or ancestry. Or racial difference. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. So racial difference, you know, there's no biological basis for race. So one would talk about ancestry or population affinity, but even that gets complicated. When you're constructing a biological profile of an unidentified person from skeletal remains, for example, you try and establish as close as possible, but it's always within a range or on a spectrum, age, ancestry or population affinity, and sex. But of those three kind of core concepts, I think age is the only one that is stable. It's become a very interesting space to to think about the fact that if you're a transgender person, for example, or in any way, gender non-binary or or gender fluid, if you go missing, a missing person's form 
will only have male or female on the form. And so I work with a, with a group called the Transdo Task Force. It's a volunteer kind of netizen, citizen, science investigative group in the United States who look into these cases where people may have been misgendered in a police investigation and then remain unidentified because, you know, an error was introduced, you know, from the get. So there are those kinds of questions which are interesting and certainly new to a lot of scientists that I deal with. But at Dundee, you know, it was also a space to work with some luminaries in the field. So Professor Dame Sue Black headed up Carhead at the time, Professor Caroline Wilkinson, who headed up the Forensic Art Program, literally wrote the book on, on forensic art and facial reconstruction. And uh, Chris Rin was there at the time, and um, Caroline Erilyn headed up the, the Medical Art Program. But it was what was important about that program and how it was designed is that we were partly in the Center for Anatomy and Human Identification and partly in the Duncan of Jordanston College of Art and Design. The, the integration of art and science was enacted you know it wasn't just spoken about it was literally done so I it was the first time I could see that played out what the possibilities were spending as much time drawing as we were learning Maya you know and sort of the you know from the moving from the analog to the digital um learning the the um haptic a sculpture system that I use now for facial reconstruction, um, Geomagic Freeform, which enables an entirely digital workflow, working in 3D with touch feedback. So you, you're getting all of the haptic. There's a lot on a skull that you need to feel to get the information. It's not available necessarily visually, and the system enables that. But without the invasiveness of actually handling human remains, chain of custody is then protected in a you know, fairly reliable way. That program really set me on a course. I, you know, I went into it with two thoughts in mind. One, if it was successful and if it was what I anticipated it to be, and I kind of went with some ideas but no expectations, just sort of open to the process, that that would be what I would commit the rest of my professional life to getting good at. And, you know, essentially I'd started a PhD around the Dada South exhibition I'd, I'd recently curated and it was in such early stages, I was like prepared to give that up if this looks like it's a, a going concern. And then I thought, you know, and if it fails, then that's fine. And what it will allow me to do is just gain a better, deeper understanding of the forensic in relation to the work that I was already doing. You know, so either it was going to like enrich my studio practice or it was going to open up a new space for me to function in, potentially. And thankfully, the latter happened. And after your MSc at Dundee, you actually moved with Professor Wilkinson to Liverpool. That's where you did your PhD uh, under her supervision. I did, that's true. But there was a little interregnum where I came back to Stellenbosch for 18 months and thought that going back to do a PhD abroad was not going to be possible. I mean, these things are horrifically expensive. And I will say that I had amazing support from the Chevening Fellowship and Oppenheimer Memorial Trust, a lot of people, you know, and, and I had a lot of support from, from funding for which I'm intensely grateful. So I came back to Stellenbosch for a period when I thought I would have to do the PhD locally, but without any support here. <laughs> there's no discourse for this. There's no expertise on the ground. There's no reliable information about this field. But I had a, a mentor at UCT and I was accepted there in the, in the Department of Anatomy. But while all of that was going on, Professor Wilkinson was, unbeknown to me, she was going to move to Liverpool to head up the Liverpool School of Art and Design at Liverpool John Moores University and asked whether I would be interested in pursuing the PhD there with her um, which, of course, I was. You know, it would essentially mean joining a new lab that she was going to establish. And that, long story short, worked out. It required a lot of legwork, but that did work out. And it had a very specific kind of deliverable, you know, on that side of the component, which was also helping to design and deliver a new MA program, which would specialize in art and science. So... Stellenbosch University were extraordinarily supportive, considering there was a break in the in the trajectory 
after the MSC, which wasn't intended. They were very understanding and very generous and enabled me to go away for a period of time, you know, with the understanding that I would return. So that's all happened now. <laughs> Before we get on to the MA, which I'm very interested in, let's talk about your PhD, which was entitled Laws of the Face. So Laws of the Face, the idea is that you say it out loud, you hear law as an LAW, which is obviously the forensic component, but you might also hear law as an LORE. So I was interested in the kind of storytelling and myth-making aspect of the face. The face is a kind of a central technology, both of identification in the forensic space, but also identity. It, you know, it's our principal kind of outward looking sign to the world, how we perform our identity, how we communicate, you know, verbally or non-verbally, facial expressions, all these things. So the face is this kind of really powerful object. And, you know, the, the history of Western art sort of focusing on portraiture, it's not for nothing. But there's also a misunderstanding that forensic art is some form of portraiture, which it isn't. It really troubles the genre or the expectation of portraiture. So it was a really complex project of my own design, but being part of FaceLab in doing it really afforded a range of opportunities while doing the research that far exceeded the research. So being able to contribute to forensic casework, to the extensive way that these skills are applied to archaeological work and heritage work for, for museum displays, learning a lot about all of that um, space, which doesn't really exist in the same way here. Um, although I think it should in some degree. But the thesis really sought to do a range of things. It sort of took a critical view of forensic art as an established but largely unregulated practice. And in parallel, sort of tested forensic art against ideas about the forensic that have emerged within the STS, the science and technology studies space, so forensic cultures, or the reclamation of the kind of original meaning of forensis, which is the root of forensic, which actually we understand forensic to mean for the law, but forensis actually speaks to the public forum. So reintroducing this sort of public visibility, and these are matters of public concern. So opening up that space to a bigger sort of humanitarian question and becoming very interested in the forensic humanitarian space. So the way that teams from around the world might get together if, you know, in disaster victim management and identification and why <laughs> some events attract that kind of support and others don't. So the fact of African and Middle Eastern migrants drowning in the Mediterranean doesn't attract that kind of support. It's still a disaster. The fact that in our South African mortuaries, the numbers of unidentified individuals reach disaster level numbers on an annual basis, but it's largely invisible. So understanding a little bit of that with my kind of insider view on things, I sort of undertook something that had both practical and theoretical objectives, and those things were complementary. I was focusing on the unidentified deceased. So that's sort of the area of specialization that I'm interested in, which sits in a different kind of forensic art space to say the cognitive interview where you would identify either the victim or the witness to a crime and try and generate a facial composite of a suspect or a person of interest. So I'm trained in that field, but I'm more interested in the unidentified deceased side of things, which goes to my sort of abiding interest, which goes back to Whitkin in the kind of cultural visibilities and invisibilities of the dead the way in which he was somehow able to, you know, get human body parts to like put in still life arrangements. It's like, how do you get to do that? <laughs> who, who gives you this stuff? And that's the kind of work that, you know, that my scientist colleagues just cannot understand, but it becomes an interesting conversation. So I have developed an understanding of forensic art as it's epistemologically precarious within forensic science. So a lot of forensic scientists don't trust forensic art at all. They don't regard it as science. But it's also ontologically ambiguous as art because a lot of artists don't trust forensic depictions. They think they're really hokey and weird and all of those things. And what I've come to realize is it's fascinating because it can be forensically successful, but an absolute failure as an artwork. And I'm really interested in that paradox of, 
how it fails in one context but can still work in another context and what the reasons for that might be. Forensic art for me also challenges all the conventional frameworks, particularly from an academic space, around the relationship between expert knowledge and amateur knowledge. This is a field where you train on the job. The majority of forensic artists essentially apprentice themselves to more established artists. So it has this kind of medieval guild feeling about it, which is interesting. But the barriers to entry, even to understand you know, how forensic art works and, and what it is, are pretty high. And there's a lot of unreliable information out there in circulation. So I was interested in taking a critical view of all of that, trying to understand it from this perspective, discovering the figure of the pracademic from the public administration field and realizing that this pracademic figure is so relevant to forensic art and, and best describes my own practice. So the pracademic is the practitioner academic who essentially moves information between practitioner spaces and spaces of scholarship and research and does quite a vital job of knowledge transfer where these two communities might be quite suspicious of each other ordinarily. So it involved talking to over 70 who I refer to as forensic death workers. So they range from technical officers in mortuaries to forensic pathologists, anthropologists, forensic artists, anyone involved in the forensic death work space from across the world. So I think everywhere from South Korea to the United States to Australia. And then I also did a very, very close analysis of the current pipeline of what happens if you're admitted to a medical legal mortuary and you become unidentified in that process. Whose responsibility is it? to do the death investigation, to do the, the identification, and what happens if those things fail. I did a case records review of 1,010 unclaimed bodies from the Salt River Mortuary in Cape Town, which is the biggest sort of mortuary in the Cape Metropole. I think it ranged over a period of about eight and a half years. And I realized in that process that just because someone is unclaimed doesn't mean that they're unidentified. But because it's very difficult to keep the statistics on the unidentifieds, it's quite difficult to pass out that information. So what I did there is I focused exclusively on the visual documentation because visual identification is something that you have to do in this country, assuming um, the body or the remains are in any state to be visually identified by a family member or next of kin. They have to do that. I was concerned about the emotional labor and trauma associated with that process for the family members, also for the workers who have to handle that process, but also because I've seen the quality of forensic photography in a lot of mortuaries and it's appalling. And the method that I'm most interested in works with post-mortem photography and using digital image manipulation to present a plausible and, and hopefully recognizable and acceptable for publication image of that person if they are unidentified. And realizing that if a bad photograph is taken on admission, it sets off a chain of events that you can never come back from. Yet it is an extremely cost-effective way of ensuring you've got good data on hand when processes happen the way that they do. So that has produced essentially a very useful sort of grounded analysis of the state of things, which I'm applying now and putting it to work in a project that I've initiated a, a cold case consortium here in the Western Cape, and we've just got a little bit of funding um, from the city of Cape Town to kind of test this using sort of multifactorial um, science. But a lot of the interviews I did with fellow forensic artists, I turned into a as yet sort of unpublished online artwork, which sort of really plays with the idea of the facial image and anonymity and storytelling how these people have come to this field as a way of creating as essentially a, a narrative database of perspectives on a field for which it's very difficult to get reliable information. So I get emailed all the time. I want to be a forensic artist. How do I become a forensic artist? I'm like, oh my Lord, there's so many <laughs> ways to answer that question. But what I always say to people is in this country, 
or actually anywhere in the world, there are so few full-time forensic artists that don't rely on this, don't think that this, this is necessarily going to be a viable career option. You know, it will always be something that you do sort of alongside something else, unless you're one of the two full-time forensic artists in SAPS who are privileged to have those roles. But we definitely need more of these jobs to be created somehow. But I think it needs a better understanding of the affordances of this work, which will also mean a, a better understanding from scientists about what the applications are and that, you know, art is not something to be sort of suspicious about or <laughs> or understanding that art is not just about making things up, which is what it's a lot of the questions I get sort of revolve around the, you know, either people assume it's magic and wizardry or they're all, you know, the, the real skeptics assume we just make it all up and neither of those are true. <laughs> Catherine, tell me about Sutherland Reburial Project because that had an interesting deep historical aspect. And as I understand it, you were working with the reconstructions so that the descendants could develop a different relationship with those remains. So it seems to be enormously rich in terms of narrative, in terms of family understandings. You can just tell me about that project and your role in it. Yeah, so that project kind of landed on my desk. I was in the last stages of kind of getting all my data together before I sat down to write. And then this, I was, this invitation came to join this research team that was associated with the Sutherland Reburial Initiative, which was led by UCT. And it started with the discovery of skeletal remains in the UCT sort of osteological repository that had been unethically acquired by the university in the 1920s. It was part of a restitution process. And part of that restitution process was the remains had associated some archival documents associated with, with them, which enabled UCT to travel to the community of origin, which is Sutherland in the Northern Cape, and essentially track down descendants of these individuals. So it's an extraordinary project in the sense that it's, as far as we know, it's the first time that a descendant community has been part of a participatory science project. And all the science that was done in relation to these nine individuals was at the request of the descendant families in order for them to understand as much as possible about their ancestors, essentially. And my role in that was to produce the facial depictions. They were really interested in seeing their faces. And the facial depictions essentially synthesize all of the other research into these images, which by all accounts are deeply relatable. The families have said various things, like they didn't expect it to look like someone they could meet in the street. They were very engaged in pointing out who looked like who. And they're very powerful. One of the family spokesperson has said that the faces are the way into a much bigger story. And I think that's true. He's exactly right. So yeah, I say facial depiction because there's a kind of a critical difference between the reconstruction process. So getting a, a kind of plausible face shape as a 3D object, but then shifting that from a kind of a model or a mannequin to a plausible relatable face. And that the texturing part of that model, we refer to as facial depiction. And that's where kind of artistic interpretation comes into it a lot more than the reconstruction part, which is very much based on anatomical standards. So that's where there is some measure of interpretation, but interpretation only in so far as you can scientifically justify it or reasonably justify it. So it's a very strange balancing act between being able to be very specific and confident about some things and needing to leave a lot else sort of open to interpretation. One doesn't know how successful they are, but at least in this case with the Sutherland images, they've done their job and that's what I'm interested in. The other part about forensic art, which is fascinating to me, 
which I think a lot of artists remain very uncomfortable with, is the fact that the work is not yours, especially if it's commissioned by a law enforcement agency or if you're working within a team. It's a question within the field. Some freelance artists sort of sign their work in a very kind of self-promotional about their role. But generally speaking, you perform the work as a service. You don't sort of own it as your own creative practice. Okay. And with the Sutherland images, were they of a form that could actually go to the, the descendants, the families? Did they kind of join the other family portraits on the mantelpiece? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, because that's what I did. I produced a, essentially a facial reconstruction album where the entire process was very, you know, explained in very simple language with images of the computer system and explaining exactly why we make these kinds of images, what their applications can be. And then with a space for each individual that tells a biography based on their biology, shall we say, or what we can tell from a skeletal analysis and all of the other analyses that were undertaken, as well as the craniofacial analysis, which is the part that I do before starting with the face and where you can derive some pretty specific information about facial features from, from the skull alone. So I produced this album for them that tells the story of these and of the nine individuals, there was eight skulls. So there are eight depictions. And then I printed the depictions. I presented them as they're probably 25 by 25 centimeters printed on a wooden panel. So essentially I take out of the, the 3D freeform system, I take a screenshot of the 3D model, the facial reconstruction, take it into Photoshop and add the texturing on the screenshot of the 3D model. So it essentially becomes like a 2.5D depiction. Yes, so they do have a set and they were presented in an archive box. They've got a set of eight image panels and now we're preparing or discussing a public exhibition of some form, not just of the facial depictions, but of the process as a whole. And th those conversations are ongoing at the moment. And another very interesting aspect of your PhD research was moving into machine identification of faces. I think of that spin-off project that you created with that fellow Stellenbosch artist, the Speaking Likeness? Oh, yeah. So Speaking Likeness is the online artwork component of the thesis. The Speaking Likeness title is a bit of a call and response to a project by a photographer called Arne Svensson, who did a project called Unspeaking Likeness, where he photographed using a kind of tilt shift focus, he photographed forensic sculptures as if they were living people sitting for their portrait. I know it. It's deeply disturbing because of just the orientation. One's used to the dead being in the horizontal and he shot them in portrait mode. Yeah. So I was intrigued by this. I know a lot of the artists who've produced the sculptures. So in conducting my fieldwork interviews, I asked some of the forensic artists that I was interviewing if they wouldn't mind sitting for a similar kind of portrait. So essentially they are video portraits, but they don't speak. So they simply, the artists simply address the camera durationally over a period of time. The interviews were not recorded for broadcast. So essentially I reworked the interviews into a series of kind of thematic pathways. And then I voiced the interviews, but you're being addressed by this artist. And it was an interesting thing because many of the artists Obviously, they all agreed to have their facial image out there, but some of them still wanted to retain anonymity. So there was a lot of conversation about how do we do this with your face out there, but you maybe don't want your voice associated with the face. Actually, I worked with Alana Blichnot, who was um, one of your students, um, and I supervised her MA. She was a Stellenbosch undergrad, came to WITS to do digital arts, um, and so she assisted me with that. And then we've done some other work together that looks a little bit more critically at sort of facial recognition and the kinds of identity identification issues and privacy issues that facial recognition systems certainly throw up. So if you look at artists like Adam Harvey has worked very interestingly with these, with certain techniques to confuse 
you know, computer, computer vision algorithms. You know, Trevor Paglin is also a very interesting artist that works in this space. And his essay about your images are looking at you. It's very interesting because what he suggests now is that we have to really rethink visual culture as we understand it, because essentially now machines can make images that only other machines can see. So how visual is the visual culture? <laughs> yeah, sort of vertiginous idea that, isn't it? That there are these enormous proliferation of images that machines exchange with each other. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, and when, when it comes to online privacy and facial image identification and all of this, you know, one just has to look at, you know, how many selfies were uploaded in any given year. And, you know, speaking to law enforcement people, or I'm speaking to my students, I just ask them, what do you think Google and other companies like that are doing with this information? You know, you're essentially giving them content to train machine learning systems. And we're giving it to them for free. We're thanking them for it. <laughs> I mean... As far as I'm concerned, the horse is bolted and like, I don't have any concerns about this, but it is an interesting thing to think about. Deeply disturbing. But as you say, if the horse is bolted. We're already in this realm, aren't we? And then that's always the big question in the forensic art field is like, to what extent can this be automated? But ultimately, where we still are, regardless of how smart the technology becomes, we need to collaborate with each other, computers and humans, you get the best results. It's not one or the other. And it's not going to be one or the other for a long, long time. But that's an interesting thing for me as well, because it goes to the question about often when people talk about art and science, I often think they get confused between art and technology and they're not necessarily the same thing. No, they aren't at all. That leads us into the very exciting degree that you were involved in developing at Liverpool. And that was the MA Art in Science even the, the name of the degree I find quite intriguing, Art in Science. Can, can you talk us through the development of that, that degree? and Because it, it was launched 2016, so it's, it's had a couple of years now. So Art in Science, I had nothing to do with the naming of it. It was the brainchild of, of Caroline Wilkinson and essentially built by herself, my colleague Mark Ruffley, um, who currently is the program lead for it at LJMU. And then in my role as a sort of PhD, sort of graduate teaching assistant, whatnot, lent some conceptual thinking and curriculum development to the program. Art in science is an interesting position. It was really to locate art within science. That's certainly how I understand it. There's a program at Central St. Martin's, which I think is art and science. So that does the and thing versus the... But actually, in a lot of our presentations, I was playing around with a lot of the ways in which this relationship, interdisciplinary relationship, is often expressed. And, you know, sci-art is the one. You know, then science comes before art. And more people speak about sci-art than they do about art-sci. <laughs> These hierarchies and relationships become interesting. I just really like the tilde. So that's tend I tend to like put art tilde science because it's it speaks about a relationality, which I think is more accurate. So the program itself, it's a taught postgraduate program, and it essentially partnered with a number of scientific departments across the university. And those partners change year to year depending on people's availability. But it essentially enabled a student, if you're interested in anatomy or astronomy, you know, you could find a place. So it was a very broad church in the sense of the sort of art science. It didn't focus on forensic arts at all, actually, although people could do work with faces. And there was a very good collaboration, which I think has just been published, actually, with a plastic surgeon working with face-based surgery, not aesthetic, but more functional. And the program itself, then we had partners from other scientific departments essentially come and introduce their specific field. And then they would also then be on hand if students wanted to take that into their research semester, they could then partner with that particular environment to produce a research project. So, I mean, the research projects have ranged massively from people looking at cyborgs to pollen to climate change, to 
you know, imagining and, and depicting, visualizing dark matter. I mean, like a whole range of things. And that's what's fascinating about it was simply the range of work and the ways in which, you know, where students came from into the program. So the majority um, have been people with some kind of art or illustration design background, but not exclusively. So some, you know, came from an American education system where they might have a minor in art and a major in microbiology. That kind of truly interdisciplinary space, which I think then leads to more of a transdisciplinary outcome, also becomes a space where seeing the integration of theory and practice is like literally in access, you know, on a daily basis. So access to extraordinary resources within the UK environment, welcome collections, science gallery, science museum, any number of sort of medical and anatomical collections, we would take students on field trips um, to these spaces. Some of them are public, some of them are less public, so the ethics around um, and sort of professional practice about, you know, who, who has access to these spaces, why is access restricted um, under certain conditions. So it was an extraordinary fruitful experience to see, you know, what was possible and, in, and engaging, you know, I think it was four cohorts of students I managed to see through um, that program in the time I was there. And yeah, an amazing kind of support to the PhD work I was doing because in teaching the approach, teaching the kind of multimodal interdisciplinary approach really challenged my own processes of what I was engaged in. So it was a very fruitful exchange. And the philosophical grounding, the presupposition underlying that MA is one that the art practice is an equal contributor, is, a, is an investigator rather than an illustrator of pre-existing scientific knowledge? How easy was it to, to get scientists to recognize the partnership rather than the vassalship, if we could call it that? Yeah, that is a great point. And that is the perennial challenge in this space that, you know, artists, designers, illustrators, the visual people are not just in service of scientists you know we're not just there to illustrate their findings or make a pretty graph or something but there's an equal contribution to knowledge so you know you can track this back to kind of cp snow's sort of classic you know lecture about the two cultures and their incompatibility and you know i think from our perspective there were already people who were sort of sensitive to this and could see the potential and others didn't, it didn't take long to kind of, you know, convince people that this was an interesting thing. So I think it's also who's open to the conversation at the time. So one of our partners on the program, Professor Andy Newsom, who's in astronomy, he actually is now professor of public engagement of science, of astronomy. And what he's been doing, some extraordinary projects, one of which was designing a garden for the Chelsea Flower Show that explained dark matter as a garden. So what is also the lesson there is that science is a very conceptual space and a very creative space. And often we don't think that it is. Maybe we just don't have the language, you know, to kind of understand each other in that space, but it's definitely not short of ideas. But for me, and certainly the approach that the MA at LJMU takes is Art and science are equal contributors to knowledge. And what I sort of brought to it and have taken from it as well is that to a large extent, and there are obviously exceptions, but science remains largely unaware of its own visual cultures, the fact that it has a visual culture. It sees images as functioning. If I talk about imaging, it will be wholly confusing to someone who deals with medical imaging like a biomedical engineer, like our understanding of what imaging is, is quite different, but then we can eventually find common ground. There's the problem of using artists for science communication versus engaging both art and sciences as distinct knowledge systems. That's what they are, really, how I understand them as knowledge systems that can exist in tension, um, but that's largely social. The possibilities of coming together they're different disciplinary practices, different sort of understandings of disciplinary rigor, convention, you know, all of these things come into it. 
the importance of not confusing science with technology, but then that art also needs to become more critically aware of how it produces certain types of knowledge and who can benefit from this outside of, you know, sort of contemporary art world, whatever that means. And on the other hand, thinking more practically, I think, is this is what I think is really useful, is demythologizing some of the parts of art, <laughs> artistic practice, and thinking really practically about art and design and the transferable skills that they offer. And that's where I think the artist can become this really powerful kind of pracademic figure. And I think it's maybe different. I'm not sure. I haven't talked to enough people, but I am about to start a little research project into this field, sort of looking at the feasibility of this within the Stellenbosch environment. And I suspect, and maybe this is something you have a perspective on in your role, Christo, but our department here at Stellenbosch is an art and design environment. The Department of Visual Arts is an art and design space, and that was its legacy, you know, sort of founded on Bauhaus principles, all of this jazz. My sense is that fine art schools, Fitz, possibly Michaela as well, have a different attitude to this. And maybe it's about the presence or lack of conversation about design in relation to art. I strongly agree with you. And I think that's a conversation that you need to advance. It would be really good to have a conference around this that would bring the different departments teaching visual arts together in, into a discussion that is genealogically informed as well, you know, the absence of design in certain fine arts traditions. It's very interesting to me also because what spending a lot of time with forensic art and forensic artists and who inhabits that field, and these are people who are often deeply mistrustful of book learning, what they refer to as book learning. So, you know, academic scholarship. These are often people who've worked in police departments their entire life. They've got a very different perspective on, like, what is experience? Like, what is knowledge? So the kind of interrogation of what knowledge is, what information is, what expertise is, that's been one of my biggest and most useful takeaways. And understanding that, yes, we sit in academia with access to resources of a particular sort, with sort of disciplinary conventions of a particular sort, but in no way should we disregard the expertise that comes from a vocational practice. And for someone who's sort of apprenticed and learned something on the job, it opens up a very interesting conversation in that space for me, which is quite political, actually, sometimes. It speaks to levels of access. It speaks to levels of privilege. And I'm very curious about this to what extent we can literally put art to work in a context where we've always got radical levels of unemployment there's also huge possibilities of thinking about the ways in which art and design can literally be useful and what that looks like i'm not sure yet i've got some ideas <laughs> watch this space but in terms of the kind of philosophical stuff about art and science James Elkins remains a really interesting figure in, across the board in terms of interrogating everything that we talk about, whether it's what is a practice-based PhD to what are the visual cultures across the university. I mean, these are just, you know, paraphrasing some of his book titles, but one of the most interesting lectures I found or useful that I found in respect of thinking through the art science conversation, particularly in relation to South Africa, where we don't have an established discourse in our context for this way of working. Whereas in the UK, a couple of years ago, I attended a conference at the Wellcome Collection, which was all about post-art and science. <laughs> so we've yet to establish the general discourse and the conversation is already being had of whether we're in a post phase of all of this. Because I think the Wellcome started to fund, actively fund art science projects pre-2000. But just to go back to James Elkins, he gave a lecture, um, which is online, called Eight Models of Art Science Interactions. And he went through these eight different sort of perceptions, expressions of what this relationship is and kind of puts them to the test. And he, he lands on his last point, point eight, which is that art and science are a drunken conversation between strange attractors. And I think that's probably correct. <laughs> Because <laughs> Elkins himself, apart from his scholarship and criticism, is somebody who, I understand, creates micro-images of 
macro images. He experiments a lot with with that in his own in his own artistic practice. Yeah, exactly. And he experiments a lot with writing or long forms of writing, writing with images. I mean, there's, there's just a lot that really resonates with me in relation to his practice. Is also incredibly prolific. And I did have the privilege of spending quite a long time with him in Cape Town a few years ago. But, you know, his approach, his kind of broad approach, always reminded me of Colin Richards and Colin being such an essential kind of influence on me as a student, but really only realizing after the fact of like how close our interests really were. And Colin obviously starting his career as a medical illustrator. Yes, and the Beaker work he did. That's what I was going to say, and the, the close encounter with the forensic images of the body of Steve Biko, um, which I've written a little essay about in relation to the Paul Stopforth depiction of Biko's body. I was on the conversation. So, you know, and Colin making a comment to me once, and I've used it as one of the opening lines of the thesis, is that illustration is a hinge between the linguistic and the visual, and it can turn in many ways. I always thought that that was pretty profound because, you know, studying fine art illustration is something that's considered lowbrow. You know, one mustn't trifle with, with illustration. And yet, in this environment here, we have an honors course in, in illustration, which moves through a whole range of forms, modes of illustration. So conceptual, narrative, and scientific. Um, and I offered a brief very compact introduction to forensic art and illustration to these honor students this year. And it was an extraordinary thing to have this conversation with students and they're producing some of the most interesting work. So I think a lot of these things are worth revisiting. And my sense is that the, the conversation between art and science is an opportunity to have those conversations in a different way, because scientists understand illustration in a way that artists don't necessarily. And on that, while you're talking about being back at Stellenbosch and your own work, talk me through the Viz Lab and what that what that offers, what possibilities there are for students. So Viz Lab is essentially myself, recently joined by a PhD student who's coming to do work. She interestingly, is the only other South African who's gone through the MSc program at Dundee, and she qualified in 2019. She's been in service with SAPS for the last sort of six and a bit years, but she's decided to pursue PhD study, and it was possible to offer that to her here because we have the whole freeform system now set up here. So we've got the full, we can do the full facial reconstruction digital workflow. But essentially, VizLab is Viz, as in Videra Lesseth, the, the sort of Latin phrase, like it is possible to see. I'm interested not just in, we will be doing craniofacial analysis, um, forensic service, applying those skills to archaeological and heritage applications as well, and hopefully offering some training or certainly exposure to the possibilities of this work for students who are interested, who show an aptitude. So there's definitely some sort of educational and public engagement conversations I'm very interested in opening up about what the forensic facial imaging space looks like or any forensic, you know, forensic art. I happen to focus on faces, but I don't think one should exclude spatial visualizations or what is not really made use of much in this context which I think should be made more use of is visual demonstrative evidence for court. You know, so to what extent can you present images of, there's a technique that's used abroad called body mapping. We don't have a jury-based trial system in South Africa, so this is slightly less urgent. But in countries where you have a jury, members of the public, you don't necessarily want to expose them or potential family members in a gallery to traumatizing images in the court. So also disrespectful to the person depicted in those images. You can't necessarily give their consent because they are deceased or whatever. So body mapping is essentially taking the, the injuries in a living, or it could also be in a motor vehicle accident case, for example, and mapping those onto an, a body form avatar. So you're not looking at the actual images, but you're looking at a remediated. And this was 
one of the kind of main outcomes of the thesis is sort of finding a way to kind of re-theorize forensic art around this concept of remediation. So remediation in the sense that you are repairing an image that needs to be repaired in order to make it publishable and recognizable and all of those things. So there's a kind of ethical and practical comp component there. But in order to do that, you, are, you need to remediate the image. You need to put it through different forms of mediation, you know, whether it's moving it from photography to, to something, whatever, drawing to photography or vice versa. So the, the remediation, working with that kind of double um, meaning of the concept of remediation. So this lab's really set up to kind of look at that kind of work, support postgraduate students who want to focus in on this space. Hopefully we can grow capacity. Right now we've got sort of two main research projects on the go, one of which is partnering with, it's part of the CHEC, which is the Cape High Education Consortium. Um, so it's myself, colleagues at UCT, Forensic Pathology Services, and the city of Cape Town looking at testing this new workflow for unidentified individuals. And so that's on the kind of forensic side. Then I have a feasibility study around sort of art science interactions as a teaching, learning and research focus um, within the university that's also kind of being channeled through, through VizLab. And just the other day, we contributed to an exhibition. There's a, a digital humanities research project happening here that looks at Africa's economic history, largely speaking. It's broader than that, but we were asked, I was invited to interpret advertisements that had been placed in contemporary, so 18th and 19th century advertisements from Cape periodicals describing people who had absconded, so essentially escaped fugitive slaves, and the physical descriptions had been offered, quite detailed descriptions of their clothing in the most offensive and racist language you can imagine, unsurprising for, you know, their function and them being of their time. The language of slave owners. The language of slave owners, exactly, and offering rewards. And, you know, and so I was paired with this researcher to kind of interpret or respond to his research. And it became a very interesting question. So Pearl, my PhD student, and I decided to collaborate because, again, it's about this being an inherently collaborative and interdisciplinary space and and really pushing the agenda of co-design is really really important <laughs> and producing these images which really tested all of the expectations about forensic art because the last thing you want to do in responding to this project is produce the kind of facial image you see on a police notice board like those terrible sort of efit images because the semiotics of those images are about criminality. Like you associate nothing else. There's no attempt to kind of engage personhood or anything within those images. So we took a completely opposite approach. I also did some work to kind of remediate the original adverts, which had been scanned from the periodicals and sort of mess with them a little bit. But essentially we produced five depictions of absconded slaves who had wisely made a, made a runner at some point. And what was fascinating to me, and it really connected to the work that I've been doing within the forensic humanitarian space and the unidentified individuals, where the level of detail given about the clothing that some of these individuals were wearing when they escaped, I was really curious about this and I had no idea. And I learned this through engaging with the historians and you know people in these seminars is that at the time in the Cape Colony, there was not that much of a difference between the way that the master class and the slave class would, would dress. Maybe it had to do with availability of clothes. I'm not sure what the reasons were. But this was a way of hiding in plain view as well. So the clothing itself had this very interesting sort of counter-forensic potential agency. And it's interesting that with unidentified individuals, especially if they're indigent a lot of homeless people, unhoused people rather, are unidentified or unclaimed in death and their clothing becomes really important. And we can also see this in the ways in which museums that deal with difficult history 
uh, Holocaust museums or museums that deal with genocide often use clothing as a kind of a stand-in for the individual, for personhood, because it's an extremely personal... I think of the shoes, the piles of shoes in Holocaust museums. So, yeah, Exactly. So the fact that clothing is a kind of an analogue, really, for individual personhood, or it can be, which can certainly open up that conversation. So within forensic art, I don't disregard reconstructing clothing or personal effects if that's going to assist in creating an image of this person that someone might be familiar with because they've seen them wear this particular headscarf or whatever it might be. Our identities are not just lodged in our facial appearance. Catherine, it's been fascinating talking to you and I look forward to continuing the dialogue in different ways. Please let's, that would be incredible. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, the Head of Arts Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Dr. Catherine Smith, the Head of the Visual Arts Department at Stellenbosch University and the leader of the Viz Lab, the first facility in Africa and one of the few in the world to offer research and casework expertise in forensic facial imaging. This podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast, Decompress, was composed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.